Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Premier Ford says Ontario is willing to accept certain conditions from the federal government if we receive health care funding increases. Is this compromise too good to be true? What is dry January? And why are some of the benefits to it? We'll talk about that. And the battle continues to rage in Ukraine as Russia reshuffles its top general. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting stuff going on at Queen's Park these days. As we told you uh, on the program yesterday, uh, there's some concern about uh, some documents that were uncovered about Bill 124. That's the very controversial uh, Ford government uh, piece of legislation that basically restricts salary increases uh, for public sector employees. The uh, information they got yesterday mentions that, well, the government knew that it was actually uh, a negative. It was actually hurting the idea of retaining health care workers, especially nurses. Uh, and the premier was asked about this yesterday. And uh, notwithstanding the fact that the document that we were referring to here was actually uh, initiated and, and constructed by his own staff, uh, he disagrees with the negativity about it. Here's what the premier had to say. There is no numbers. But I'll tell you the numbers, if they had anything negative, uh, that must be not accurate because never in the history of this province has there been more nurses hired, over 12,000, and that's not my numbers, that's from the College of Nurses, uh, over 60,000 new nurses uh, have been hired uh, since 2018. Uh, we've hiring more doctors than ever before. We're building more medical uh, universities than ever before. We're building more hospitals than ever before. Uh, but again, uh, Bill 124, uh, when the nurses uh, negotiate and the, and the hospitals negotiate with them, uh, Bill 124 doesn't exist. Uh, I want to get into some of the nuance of that because it's it's one thing to have numbers thrown at you, but uh, let's peel back some of the layers here and find out what's going on. And to do that, please do welcome back to the program, Alan Hale. Alan, of course, is a reporter for Queen's Park today. Uh, Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, well, I, I suppose if I was being cynical, I'd say a lot of spin going on with the Premier there. What, what was your read on what he said yesterday? I want to get into a, a couple of different aspects, but let's start with 124. Okay, well... It's uh, basically the uh, the premier was responding to some very excellent reporting, which you uh, mentioned earlier uh, by Global News uh, reporters Isaac Callen and Colin DeMello, who have just been coming out day after day with uh, really interesting stuff, usually from like um, freedom of information requests. Um, we saw that they've got a hold of uh, the health minister, uh, Sylvia Jones's uh briefing binder which uh is the notes the ministry gives to her uh when she takes the job and it, they basically uh the ministry also agrees with the criticism of bill 124 that we've had for years that it's harming that it's harming uh health worker retention and recruitment and that was something the government has really insisted was not the case and even in the even with this evidence that the ministry agrees with critics Ford, uh, as we heard in the clip, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't agree with that, uh, and they are still uh, uh, pushing the idea that this that everything is fine. Um, it is quite interesting that the, uh, he tried. He's. It seemed like to me that he's trying to sort of move past Bill One Twenty Four at this point. He was. To, he insisted that uh, the bill had base had lapsed already, which uh, it, it it was always planned to like 
end after three years. It was never meant to be permanent. But to say that it had lapsed already had lapsed was um, not 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 quite true. It was struck down by the courts about a month a month and a half ago, and uh, to say it had lapsed is a bit of an interesting spin. And it also, to, when he said that it wasn't going to apply to the next round of contract uh, uh, of contract negotiations with hospitals, also came to a re- as a real shock to unions yesterday, who some of them uh, still have uh, 124 being uh, applied to them because they had contracts that had to end first before it, that those three years that three year pay cap could come in. So. It was a very interesting statement that has a lot of people scratching their heads about what that what he just meant. And because of, as you say, some of the disconnect there, uh, you know, at the, the end of the clip there where he says, you know, that, that 124 won't even exist, then why are mm-hmm. they appealing it? Why are they appealing the court decision then? Doesn't well, make any sense, does it? <laughs> well, now that is a whole other thing, because like I mentioned, the the Bill 124 was, uh, was struck down and they are still... Um, appealing that decision to try to get it back into force. Um, when it, we uh, the reporters questioned on him on this yesterday, and he didn't really have much of an answer other than to say that he had to be a good, prudent uh, fiscal manager for Ontario, which I suppose is a fair point because we do know, and it has been estimated that um, if uh, Bill 124 was either struck down or repealed, uh, as it has been, um, the Financial Accountability Office uh, estimated that the uh, government could be facing billions of dollars in back uh, in retroactive pay increases for all these unionized workers who have, while the bill was in effect, uh, negotiated these uh, clauses with their employers saying that they would reopen all of those past years of wage increases if the bill fell in any way. There's another element to this too, and I, I, you have to get into the nuance of it. Yeah, as, as you saw yesterday, and we just heard in the clip, uh, you know, he's talking about all the nurses that have been hired, you know, more than ever before. And I mean, to, to hear the premier talk, we be bumping into a nurse every five feet in a hospital. And that's certainly not the case. Uh, what he mm-hmm. doesn't mention here is the number of nurses that maintain their their registration. You know, they, they pay their fee every year, but they're not practicing nurses, which is not really helping the healthcare system. They don't seem to want to include that in those stats. Well, yeah. See, he's, he is pointing to some numbers that came from the Ontario College of Nurses, and it does. Uh, they did show that uh, there was a uh, increase in um, registrations, about twelve thousand eight hundred. Uh, but as you as you point out, it is not necessarily that there are more nurses. It's just that there are more registrations, and they haven't. Uh, uh, and you can have a net registration as a nurse, and sort of just uh, you don't actually have to have a job. You just are registered with the uh, college, but. It is what the piece. It is like a good sign, nonetheless. Uh, and the PCs are happy to point to it and say that, uh, well, everything is well. And as the <laughs> premier said, anything else that says that things are bad must not be accurate because the college has <laughs> got all these new registrations, which is a debatable sort of uh, thing to claim. Yeah, but you've heard that song before, haven't you? And all the times you've been uh, covering Queens Park, uh, he did the same thing with the Auditor General's report too. He just said, "I don't." The numbers aren't right. Well, <laughs> he, he didn't have present. Pre- you know, he didn't present any valid reasons why they weren't right. He just said they weren't right. So uh, that's a, an easy path to take. Is simply say, if you don't agree with something, just say it's not true uh, without any proof. But he's pulled that one a few times, and in, in your reporting about even with the Greenbelt decision a couple of months ago too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not true. No, because I said it's not true. That's why. I don't know if that's going to yeah. fly, but that's that seems to be a, a common theme now. 
And there does seem to be a practice of trying to keep as much of the uh, internal government numbers out of public hands as possible. As I, me- uh, we, uh, I mentioned, the uh, Global's reporting on this, but they also had a story yesterday where they asked uh, the government for numbers on how many health nurses and other healthcare workers the province needs to um, needs to hire to fill the gaps in the system, and it was all redacted. It was all blacked out in the in the documents they got back. Uh, and it was uh, he was justified as it would harm the government's uh, the province of Ontario's uh, economic uh, and political interests if those numbers got out. So we know the government uh, Ford is happy to uh, point to numbers that he likes and then suppress information that um, you know might undermine the narrative. Interesting. Uh, on, on another topic, though, and I, this came as a bit of a shock to an awful lot of us. Uh, the premier mentioned yesterday uh, that he's he's willing to live with the, the prime minister's idea that okay, we'll give you more health care money, but you're going to have to be accountable. In other words, we want to see where every dollar is going and, and why it's being spent there. Uh, I know at first, as as you were reporting, uh, all of the premiers basically said, "Don't even go there. That's our money. We'll do what we want." The Ford comment yesterday seems to indicate that he's he's willing to to bend a little bit here. Do you think he could? First of all, are you surprised by that? And can he convince his his, his fellow premiers to go along with that? I think his uh, his fellow premiers are going to be surprised by that. <laughs> um, I, I'm I, I I was I was listening to this uh, this press conference and I did I did not quite draw quite a strong conclusion from those remarks he was talking about he did he acknowledged that there needed to be accountability but i didn't quite i didn't quite get the impression that he is making some major break with the rest of the premiers on their position that they don't want to be dictated to by the federal government about how they spend any increase in the health in the federal health transfer but he did seem to open the door to it at the very least, which I think will have um, some interesting conversations for him uh, with the other premiers, especially uh, with Manitoba's premier, who is the uh, the current chair of their little group uh, called the Council of the Federation. And really, it's her who has been um, uh, leading the charge on this, um, whether she feels that he's undermined her here. Uh, I guess we will have to be we'll have to come out between the two of them but um i'm not quite sure i take what ford said as a um that that they're he's ready to just accept whatever strings the uh, federal government wants to attach to that money in defiance of the the bargaining position he and the other premiers have maintained for months yeah i guess the devil is in the details though isn't it when you look at it that mm-hmm. way alan i mean what does he mean by you know, accountability. Does that mean he's actually going to show us? A, are there going to be ledgers that are going to be presented? Or is he just going to say, well, you know, I've, that's what the press release said. That's it's, We don't know yet. No. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. I He definitely did not say he was going to, extra, he was going to accept uh, strings, but he didn't want to accept accountability. And accountability here is going to be the eye of the beholder. Um, I mean, you can argue that uh, as a democratically elected leader, he has accountability by default i mean like it really is it really is like really open to interpretation and i really really doubt that he is he intended to go against the bargaining position that they've been pushing for literally months well and you have to wonder as you say about the ramifications of something like that and and how as you the fellow premiers are going to go for it but again what does he mean by that i mean we you know we found out in the last auditor general's report as you guys were reporting at that queen's park today 
uh, from Bonnie that uh, there was a, a big chunk of money that came to the province uh, for COVID relief, and he never spent it. It went into mm-hmm. general revenue. Uh, they weren't very open and honest about that. Well, I mean, this government has been found to, like, by the, found to, by the um, Financial Accountability Office uh, multiple times that they have you know, received money or like promised to spend money and then spent significantly less than that. And it's never been quite explained why they want to do that. Um, I mean, nor in normal times, I suppose that it is always better for the government to uh, spend less than it, uh, than, um, you know, if it can, because, you know, financial uh, fiscal responsibility and everything. But I mean, the, the COVID money, it was just a and a glaring example is like, why wouldn't you spend the money, uh, all the money that you got when it was uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic? But it is a pattern with the government. They are definitely, you know, spending less than they say they will. And um, yeah, they put money into uh, unallocated funds that uh, they might that might go any which way <laughs> be spent on anything. Um, so it is a little difficult to follow uh, what the what the government wants to do with money in general, which is always, which then makes us rely more and more on reports from people like the uh, Financial Accountability Office, who are some of the only people with the expertise and the access to the information that the public doesn't often get. Is there any opportunity here or any chance that that the premier is just going to say, look, let's all get around the same table and try to hash this out? Uh, you know, the medical professionals, uh, the the hospital staffs uh, that don't seem to have a voice in this whole situation. I, I, it would seem to be the sensible thing to do at this stage so we could get a common message and maybe some common solutions here. But uh, I don't get the sense that they're even thinking about something like that. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't even know how well that would go. Um, we have... The, the government is often willing to talk to some groups in the um, in, in the healthcare system and not others. Like, would if you were to have such a big, you know, wide ranging investigation, you'd need to have um, people like QP and SIU Healthcare and the Ontario Nurses Association all at the table. And some of those groups are not not friendly with the government at mm-hmm. all. And uh, the government and because of this, uh, the PCs just don't give them meetings usually, and they go with other groups that are more uh, more friendly, like the the Registered Nose, uh, Nurses Association of Ontario, which uh, they do meet with, but not the Ontario Nurses Association, which is an actual union and much more antagonistic. So, if you got everybody at the table, uh, there'd be a lot of hurt feelings to, and like grievances to get past before you get to anything constructive. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the show, Alan. Thanks so much for the time today. Stay well, and we'll oh, talk again soon. Thank you. Alan Hale, reporter for Queen's Park Today, who's uh, trying to make some sense of some of the uh, the missives that are coming out of Queen's Park these days. And it's difficult. You know, The word accountability gets tossed around a lot in politics these days. But what should we expect? When you think of a government being, quote, unquote, accountable, what does that really mean? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may remember from last year, there's a big uh, program called Dry Feb, basically saying, look, no alcohol consumption for, well, the 28 days of February. And uh, I know a lot of people that, did, that tried it and did it and 
some work, some not so much. Uh, now they're talking about dry January and February. Uh, and I don't know if that's feasible for a lot of people. It's still a very good idea, though, as our next guest will tell us. He's Dr. Peter Beeling, who's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University, also the vice president and director of the Mental Health and Addiction Program at St. Joe's Hospital in Hamilton. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Bill. Um, this is, hey, I'm, not, like I'm not the vice president anymore. I gave that up. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> talk talk about dry January, but that's okay. Breaking news. There we go. <laughs> yeah, there uh, you go. This sounded like kind of a neat idea after the Christmas holiday season where many people tend to overindulge, I guess, a little bit. Uh, but I'm trying to connect the dots here. Uh, for the last two and a half, three years, many of us have been working from home. Uh, you know, we've been shut down because of a number of other things. And we know statistics tell us alcohol consumption is up considerably. So this seems like a, an idea whose time has come for a lot of people, doesn't it? Uh, totally. Yeah. No, I think it's well-timed. It does take advantage also of kind of the, the, the New Year's resolutions idea that this is often a time of year that we, we, we reflect on our, our habits and things. Um, you know, it probably wouldn't make sense for an agency to propose a, a dry May 2-4 weekend. You know, no one's going <laughs> to love that idea. But I think in January and Feb, we, you know, gyms are packed because we're ready to make healthier choices. What are, aside from the obvious, what are the advantages to something like this, the health benefits to this? I mean, we know that overconsumption of alcohol can really be detrimental, both short-term and long-term for many people. Uh, but if, if you go dry for 28 or 30 days or whatever it might be, uh, what kind of changes does, does that enact in the body? Well, so there's, a, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, two weeks is a vacation and three weeks is a lifestyle. Um, and I think that that would apply here. So if you could be dry for a month, not only would uh, you know your 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 body chemistry and your physiology change, but you would probably stop and reflect on uh, things like, hey, Saturday mornings go a little bit easier if I don't have you know that half bottle of wine on 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 Friday night, and and then people can sort of make a rational assessment of, you know. Uh, it's it's it might be hard not to have the half bottle on a Friday night, and there's a there's a an enjoyment from it, uh, and not, you know, there's a level of alcohol use that's not not dangerous, but for most of us we could do with a little bit less, right? And so, after a month, people are going to make a decision: Hey, was that month better for me or or worse, right? And and kind of rationally decide that maybe there's some lessons to be learned from this month that they could continue. Uh, I, I doubt very few people would end up being uh, sort of teetotalers after that, um, but but that's a possible result as well. Well, a friend of mine went through this last year in February, just as, as kind of a lark. He said, hey, let's try that. And, uh, and he, he did pretty well, as he told me. He did those 28 days of February. And he said the first thing I noticed is he lost weight. And I guess yeah, when you think about that, you know, there's sugar in alcohol. And yep. uh, if you're mixing yep. it, there's probably sugar in the mix that you're using too. And and even reducing the, by that much, it, it made a significant difference. I think he lost something like 14 pounds. Yeah, no, again, that isn't that that isn't surprising. I think we underestimate how much uh, how many calories are in alcohol because it looks like it wouldn't be very much. It's a beverage after all, but um, you know, that's kind of significant. Some people are going to stop and and you know, the cost will matter, right? That there's more there's more in their discretionary bank account because, you know, they didn't spend it kind of on this. And also they'll learn a little bit about how hard it is because they're going to be hanging around people who think that you know, dry January, dry February is a joke and, you know, surely you're kidding and come on, just have one. And, you know, that kind of social and peer pressure is, is sort of valuable uh, to learn about. And I think 
you know, knowing, I guess, what I do about human nature, most people won't be able to do this, frankly. Uh, it's a good thing to try, but I think there's some wisdom to be learned in how hard it was and that, you know, on day 20, you couldn't quite do it, you know? So we got to be easy on ourselves and say, well, you know, the, the attempt was worth it. And, um, you know, there's research that says that when somebody's trying to change their habit, you know, a bad habit, they have to try to change it about five times before it clicks, you know? So it's, it's, it's hard, it's harder to do this than it might first appear, but it's a lovely idea to kind of publicize it and say, Hey, let's, let's try it all together. You know what I mean? It gives you, it gives you license to, to have a go at this important uh, change. Well, I, I how difficult is it, though? I mean, from a psychological standpoint, I certainly understand that. But if you're developing a physical dependency to it, it's awfully hard to simply say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. We we tend to slide into bad habits, don't we? And it's it's pretty difficult to just flick a switch and say, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this is meant to appeal to people who are kind of moderate moderate drinkers. People who are dependent on alcohol will immediately have, you know, kind of withdrawal and they, 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 they probably aren't, aren't thinking about this. And if they are, you know, I would recommend that they don't, they don't go this alone, right. That, that they make this change and also seek out formal treatment or formal supports like AA, which by the way, is incredibly effective. Um, it's just hard for people to, to get there and acknowledge that it's time to do this. Um, so, you know, this debate in the literature about whether the best way for people who are dependent on alcohol is to taper uh, or to try to sort of go cold turkey. Both both method, methods can work, but m both methods are challenging for sure. Well, which is why some of the articles I've read about this in the last couple of days, they said, okay, if, if you can't do the dry feb, uh, do a damp one. Uh, at least reduce the consumption anyway. Yeah, it's a very popular trend in 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 uh, treating addictions. Is uh, you know falls under the general heading of harm reduction, mm -hmm. right? That um, you know, I mean, I guess my mention of a Friday night glass of wine wasn't wasn't totally incidental uh, because you know that's that often is the end of the week signal for people and yeah. so on. But so having a glass of wine on a Friday night is still way better than having a glass of wine on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so kind of limiting the impact, yeah. Well, uh, we'll see how the, the uptake on this is going to be fascinating to see. It seems to be, hopefully, a, a habit, again, uh, that a lot of people are going to pick up on. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for some uh, time today and to give us some insight into this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Take care. It's uh, Dr. Peter Beeling uh, from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science talking about dry Feb or dry January, whatever it is that you may want to take a run at. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the bloodiest battles of Russia's invasion in Ukraine, the uh, fate of an eastern Ukrainian town of Solodar hangs in the balance. Karen Chamas has some details for us. Russian forces used jets, mortars and rockets to bombard Solodar in an unrelenting assault. If Solodar were to fall into Russian hands, it would be a prize for a Kremlin starved of good battlefield news in recent months. It would also offer Russian troops a springboard to conquer other areas of Donetsk province that remain under Ukrainian control, such as the nearby strategic city of Bakhmut. In the trenches in the Donetsk region, Ukrainian troops fire mortars at Russian forces. The Ukrainian soldier known as Festa tells the AP the Russian military fires relentlessly, sometimes just for practice. He said, They don't shoot like we do. We count and clearly try to work well. I'm Karen Chamas. So, 
We're even getting mixed messages about what's happening there, too. The Russians are claiming that they've taken that city, that they own it now. Uh, they say the streets are strewn with the bodies of Ukraine soldiers. Uh, President Zelensky has quite a different uh, perspective on what's happening there. Uh, to try to get some clarity, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, uh, as always, thanks for joining us today. Uh, what do you make of what's happened over the last couple of days here, especially in that region of Ukraine? Well, there's so many different ways to view this. Let's take it from the top that okay. Russia has continued its totally unprovoked imperial invasion of a neighboring state and is pummeling it with everything it's got. The relentless use of drones, of artillery, heavy artillery, now it's air force uh, against civilian populations. All of these atrocities continue. So the big story here is that the imperial adventurism which is a failing venture for Mr. Putin, is continuing. The details of the changes in the structure of the uh, upper levels of the military is a story unto itself. But the big story is this imperial adventure, adventure is not going well for Mr. Putin, and it's a terrible tragedy for Ukraine. Well, and the numbers indicate that, and, and uh, which is why Zelensky's comments were not that, no, no, we still control that, but no, it's it's still in play. So this may well be, as they say, one of the most intense battles of, of this war. Uh, if, in fact, the Russians do control it, as they say they do, what, is there a strategic advantage to this area? <laughs> one commentator has said that, remember, this war started by an attempt by Russia to take Kiev, the capital, mm -hmm. and now it's come down to taking this tiny little salt town uh, on the outskirts of another small town in order to gain some minor strategic advantage. Yes, it would, of course, be apparently a tactical advantage if they could take this town. It would also be a morale booster for a military which has failed to do anything except kill people and terrorize people, but it's not had any military gains on the ground. So this would be, as again, a commentator said, if they take this small salt town, would Trump be trumpeted as the same as taking Berlin in the Second World War. Apparently, it would give them some tactical advantage because then it would lead on to Bakhmut, uh, have a, an advantage of taking Bakhmut, which in turn has an advantage in consolidating their hold on the Donbass, which is what they now say they want to do, uh, having lost their first goal, which was to take the entire country by a military decapitation and through a blitzkrieg. You know, the one-week war, that didn't work. Now, let's switch over to here and say the whole war has come down to this uh, one small town. Uh, one of the strategic advantages, as I read it anyway, is you, and you mentioned the salt mines in, in this town. Yes, exactly. Uh, they, they could hide uh, artillery and weaponry and troops if they wanted down there, uh, which would, of course, be uh, out of the range of, of Ukrainian artillery if they were to do that. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to ask you about here are the soldiers themselves. Uh, the fact that, that Russia seems to have hired mercenaries. Uh, in in some cases, and and now, and you predicted this about a year ago. Uh, they're they're draining the prisons now and saying you're now a soldier. Here's your gun. Get out there. Uh, and it's right. a much different attitude, much more bloodthirsty. It seems. I, you know, we had stories a few months ago of soldiers dropping their guns and running. Um, it seems to be a different mindset that the Russians are using now militarily. Right. Well, those salt mines are useful too because they go on for several hundred kilometers, and you can move troops around. Yes, the. Uh... <laughs> Part of what's going on is an incredible power struggle at the top inside the Kremlin over who's going to win this war, who's going to gain an advantage. Clearly, there's intra-elite dissension at the very top of the uh, 
of Putin decision-making and military machinery. The, the Wagner Group, or the Wagner Group, it's Wagner really because they've named it after the German uh, composer because he was a, a pro-Nazi. But the, um, this mercenary group has been used in Africa to pursue at sort of an arm's length from the Russian state, from Mr. Putin's machine, the goals in Africa. They are absolutely ruthless. Uh, they commit war crimes wantonly, and they take over valuable um, assets. And that's part of what's going on here. The Wagner Group is now saying, the Wagner Group leader is now saying, I'm the only one who's effective here. The generals are incompetent. Uh, give the job to me. I will get the job done. Now the uh, Russian military top brass is saying, we are the ones taking this. Look, it's our paramilitary, it's our military uh, paratroopers who are dropping down. They're the ones who are winning this war. So there's a struggle for power within the top levels of the military and political machinery of, of uh, Mr. Putin. We see this now, and of course, the reassignment, the shocking reassignment of, I'll just use the more informal names, General Armageddon. Remember when this war started to go badly for Mr. Putin, he brought in what he considers a highly successful general, that is the general in charge of the Syrian operation. Mm -hmm. They, in Syria, keeping in mind, Bill, that you know we've had trouble identifying with the atrocities in Syria or in Groznia, but uh, Ukraine makes it much more real for, you know, for people like us here. Now, what happened in Syria was an attempt to break the will of the civilian population by bombing civilian targets, by devastating cities. That person, <clears throat> General Armageddon, was put in charge of the war in Ukraine three months ago. And he indeed has uh, launched, apparently he's responsible for the decision to try to break the will of the population but these massive, massive assaults on the infrastructure, energy infrastructure, as well as civilian targets across the country, across Ukraine, so that there'd be no heat or light, no power throughout the winter. But now his star apparently is dimming. He's been demoted. And the top general in the army is now being promoted to the, be in charge directly of the battlefield. This hasn't happened since uh, the Nazi assault in 1941. Uh, when the top general then was put in charge of going to the front. So there's been turmoil at the top, power struggles at the top, and Ukraine is paying a terrible price. Let's talk about that price, because a, a, a number of, of observers, uh, military ex with expertise, are simply saying uh, Russia may prevail in this region eventually, uh, but it may cost them much more than they had anticipated. Uh, I think one of the uh, people actually said, uh, you know, that uh, the heavy casualties, et cetera, are going to make this very precarious. And uh, it, it said that it, it's significant, but compared to what it's going to cost Russia to achieve it, it may not be worth it. Yes, the um, the informed view of the battle itself, those who follow it very closely say that the strategic significance should, is being overblown here, that if, if this does happen to fall, it's not going to change the overall balance of forces in the region. It's not going to change the momentum of the war except to give a morale boost and uh, to Russia as a whole, but also to certain factions within the Russian power struggle at the top. A lot of uh, power and influence inside the Kremlin is apparently being driven by military bloggers who are very bloodthirsty, uh, much more hardline than the, than the other parts of the population. So um, this is a long, hard slog. Ukraine is putting up a valiant battle 
We should also mention that the increasing levels of support for Ukraine to conduct this, keeping in mind there is still no no fly zone. <clears throat> There's still no fighter jets being provided to Ukraine. They are not permitted to use their weapons outside of the territory of Ukraine because the West, starting with Mr. Biden, said, we want Ukraine to win, but we don't want World War III. We cannot have direct confrontation with nuclear-armed Russia. And as we know, Mr. Putin keeps threatening nuclear war. So Mr. Biden has been steadily ratcheting up, however, the kind of support going there. And he's the leader of a coalition which we are part of. We are now providing heavier weapons as well. More heavy weapons are now going into Ukraine to conduct the battle on Ukrainian soil against this Russian imperialism. Well, we'll see what happens in the next couple of days, as you say, with new leadership in the Russian <laughs> army and uh, some discontent in the Kremlin. Uh, you never know what the next steps are going to be. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us today. Oh, very welcome. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, America's professor of political science at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.